Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Friends, we are so honored today to be here with Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens, who is a first-rate scholar and um, and not one just sitting in the ivory tower, but one who, of deep relevance, who is having an impact in the academic world and in the Jewish grassroots world, and is wrestling with an issue with us today that is of deep significance, the problem of evil, something that has been a barrier for many people to engage in religion, and something that has been um, a topic of inquiry for, uh, for centuries, for millennia. Um, and so um, I know you'll enjoy today both his presentation and the uh, opportunity to engage in a conversation with him. We're partnering today with HEA, HEA in Denver, one of our great partner synagogues. And I'm gonna pass it over to my colleague, Morty, uh, to introduce our scholar today. Thank you, Rabbi Shmuley. Again, welcome, good morning, Booker Tub, to all of our friends and uh, members and affiliates with the Hebrew Educational Alliance at Valley Beth Midrash. We are just so pleased to be partnering with this uh, wonderful institution, bringing more Jewish education, adult education to all of our participants. Uh, I just need to do a real brief plug uh, as part of our uh, programming here at the Shul. Uh, coming up the weekend of September 16th and 17th, that is Salichot weekend, will be our third annual uh, Elul in the Shul program. And we are honored to be having Rabbi Shmuley joining us that uh, weekend as our scholar in residence. Uh, it'll be a wonderful weekend to help us prepare in the month of Elul and get us in the right mindset for the uh, coming new year for Rosh Hashanah and the Chagim. So if you have not RSVP'd yet, I will put a little uh, reminder in the chat room here to RSVP online for that here at the HEA, the Hebrew Education Alliance. Uh, and again, we're just pleased to be partnering. Also want to give a shout out to uh, Ethan Widoff, the new director or Denver director of Valley Bed Midrash, who we are working very closely with to coordinate and expand our uh, educational uh, opportunities and selections and offerings with BBM. So Ethan, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be working with you. Uh, so at this point, uh, I'd like to pass along to our guest this morning, uh, Rabbi Samuel Levins, uh, Liebens, excuse me, uh, who will be uh, bringing us this rather interesting topic, the uh, problem of evil. Um, and it looks like to be a very interesting subject. So thank you again, everyone. Book yourself. Welcome to all. And uh, Rabbi, the show. Oh, is thank good. you very much. Thank you, th thank you, uh, Morty, and, and, and I'd like to thank Rav Shmuley, the 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 HEA is it, and the VBM uh, for for, um, for for hosting this talk and and, and having me. Um, yeah, so we're going to speak about the problem of evil, uh, and and I want to speak about why it should matter to us, uh, as, as I hope, you know, uh, in this space, as, you know, I, I, I know Rav Shmuley well, I've had the, the chance of, of spending some time in South Africa with him many moons ago, and, and I know that, um, that social action and social justice is, is uh, central uh, to, to, to his Torah, and, to, and should be to all of our Torahs, in my opinion, uh, but, but central to what he does, and, and I, I want to kind of bring uh, that element of, of activism and social justice into conversation with this philosophical topic, uh, the problem of evil. Uh, before, before I get there, let me kind of show you how we define the problem. So the problem is like this. Um, traditionally, theists uh, believe in a God who is all-powerful. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you hear this thought that, ah, this notion of omnipotence uh, all, all powerful, omniscience, all knowing, uh, omnibenevolent. These are Greek words. You think, you know, does the Torah, does the Hebrew Bible really believe in these things? Well, there's actually pretty good evidence that it does, right? So um, in Sefer Bereshit, when, when Sarah Imenu, uh, the, Sarah, our foremother, um, she's told that she's going to uh, bear uh, a child. And she's she's in her ninetieth uh, 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 year. She's in her sorry in her tenth decade. You know she's in her nineties. Um, she laughs. And part of what God says is, me Is there something that's too hard for God to do? 
right? Don't think God can't make a 90-year-old pregnant. God, God, God can make anything happen. And that's just one example of multiple examples in the Torah where it, it seems as if there's nothing beyond the power of God. Um, we also believe in a God who knows everything. And, and once again, you can reach to the, the Hebrew Bible for evidence of, of that belief. You know, uh, the book of Psalms tells us, which means something like there's no limit to his understanding. Right. So he, he knows everything. So God is all powerful, can do anything, all knowing there's nothing that he doesn't know. And he's also completely and utterly good. There's nothing bad about this God. Right. Uh, a nice biblical verse to kind of motivate that is uh, that's a verse also from the book of Psalms, which means uh, God is righteous in all of his ways and he is uh, a pious or a chassid is somebody who, who, who manifests chesed, loving kindness in all of his deeds, right? This is, a, this is a powerful, knowledgeable, and good God. The problem is this, right? If God is really that powerful, then he should be powerful enough to get rid of all evil, all pain, all suffering, all injustice. Likewise, if God is all-knowing, he should understand how to do it, and he should know where the injustice is and where the pain and where the evil is. And if he's completely good, he should also want to get rid of pain and suffering and evil and injustice. Um, so, you, so you've got all the ingredients, of course, for there being no evil in the world. But uh, sadly, we all know that evil does exist. And that's, that's the basic problem. There's an inconsistency here. Either you have to deny that God is all-powerful, and then you can say, well, you know, he'd love to get rid of evil, but he just can't. It's too much for him, right? Or you have to say he's not all-knowing, and you could say, you know, if only God knew where the evil was, he'd get rid of it. But it's just, you know, I don't know, he can't, he's not up to date with the news or something. Or uh, you could deny that he's perfectly good. You know, you could say, no, God quite likes all the pain and suffering down here on earth. Or you could deny that evil exists. You could say, actually, actually everything's hunkadori. Okay? Uh, but that would seem very cold-hearted in the face of all the suffering that we do seem to see around us. So one of these four things has to be false. They can't all be true. And yet, classically, the theist wants to accept all four of these things. In fact, the easiest thing for the theist here to deny would be that evil exists. But Sadly, the evidence is all around us, the pain and suffering uh, and injustice uh, around us. So that's the problem, the problem of evil. And the reason I want to explain, uh, you know, I wanted to bring this into a social justice uh, kind of dimension, is there's this project in philosophy that is sometimes called theodicy. It's a word that, that Gottlieb Leibniz uh, coined. It literally means a defense of God, right? So if you, if, you, if you want to try and justify why God allows pain and suffering and injustice in the world, if you want to justify um, God in the face of the problem of evil, you are trying to put forward what Leibniz called a theodicy. And there are good Jewish reasons to be anti-theodicy. Uh, philosophers are always looking for an answer to the problem of evil, theistic philosophers. But there's good reason to be anti-theodicy. Um, uh, just before we went live, Rav, Rav Shmuley and I were talking briefly about Rabbi Sachs, my rabbi and teacher. Um, and this is a, 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 a seminally important work, in my opinion, if, if you're interested in kind of, especially a popular Jewish thought, because it was written for a broad, broad audience. It's called uh, his book, To Heal a Fractured World, which, which is his kind of um, um, clarion call for a, a, a social justice uh, um, movement uh, to be animated by the principles of rabbinic Judaism. And, for, and likewise for rabbinic Judaism to be more animated by uh, the desire for social justice, to heal a fractured world. And he quotes here, this, this actually isn't his own idea. He's, he, he says this in the name of his teacher, Rav Nachum Rabinovitz, his, 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 uh, one of his, his main rabbis. The question is, 
why did Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, why did Moses hide his face instead of looking at the burning bush? You know that great moment when, when Moses confronts the divine presence and for the first time, you know, he receives this calling from on high. He doesn't look at the bush. He doesn't want to look at the bush. He hides his face because he was afraid to look at God. So Rabbi Rabinovich said, and Rabbi Sachs quoted, why was he afraid, says Rabbi Sachs, because if he were fully to understand God, he would have no choice but to be reconciled to the slavery and oppression of the world. From the vantage point of eternity, he would see that the bad is a necessary stage on the journey to the good. He would understand God but he would cease to be Moses, the fighter against injustice, who intervened whenever he saw wrong being done. He was afraid that seeing heaven would desensitize him to earth, that coming close to infinity would mean losing his humanity. I think there's something very beautiful here, but I was talking about this with Rav uh, Shmuli as well. Nobody's above criticism, even our own teachers and and and. Uh, the truly great teachers want to have their words and thoughts uh, uh, scrutinized. There's, there are some problems here in this text um, because let me, let me explain what I think he's trying to say and let me explain then why I think there's a little bit of a problem. What he's trying to say, I think, is very beautiful. I say, look, we believe there must be some theodicy or other. Right? God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. And God is completely and utterly good. So there must be some reason why he allows pain and suffering in the earth. But I don't want to know that reason. I would rather not know that reason because the fear is that knowing that reason would desensitize me to the pain and suffering around me. Because once you understand why God allows it, so to speak, you have a justification for it. And if you have a justification for it, then you're not going to fight it. But Moses was par excellence a warrior against slavery and oppression and injustice. So it's all very well, so to speak, to know the mind of God and figure out what the true theodicy is. But if the cost is your own humanity and your own identity as a warrior against injustice, then that's too much of a cost. I would rather not know the answer and, and remain committed to fighting injustice. So that's the beautiful idea. The problem uh, and, and I saw this first articulated by uh, David Schatz, who will come up in, in this uh, uh, class as well. David Schatz is a really important Jewish thinker and philosopher uh, based in New York. He teaches at um, Stern College, Yeshiva uh, um, University. He um, says, well, hold on a minute. If there really is a reason for the evil and the suffering and the injustice in the world, and if knowing that reason would stop you fighting it, then you should stop fighting it. Or the reason that God allows suffering and evil to exist somehow continues to license our fighting it. And then you have to continue fighting it. But one way or the other, we should still want to know what the answer is, right? It, it, there's a beautiful idea here, but if you really do believe in God's omnipotence, God's omniscience, and God's omnibenevolence, that's the power, the knowledge, and the goodness, and you really believe there's an answer, then you're faced with a choice. Either the answer is such that actually, you know, the poor really should be poor, and the ill really should be ill, and they're all being punished or something, and you should sit back and, and let the evil, you know, unfold, because actually it's justified. Or somehow God's policies for running the world that allow this pain and suffering and and, and, and injustice to flourish, um, are consistent with God's goodness, with God's knowledge and God's power, but still license us, or maybe even call upon us, or maybe mandate us to fight it. Either way, we should want to know the truth. We shouldn't want to be ignorant. We should be humble. We should recognize we might not be able to know every, you know, the answer to every question. But there's nothing wrong with desiring to know the truth. So there's a little bit of a problem here, I think, with what Rabbi Sachs says. Maybe people want to come back to it uh, uh, at the end when we uh, have question and answer. But Rabbi Sachs isn't the first Jewish thinker to be uncomfortable with theodicy. Okay. 
There's an amazing Gemara I want to share with you. Uh, so it's a quote from the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Yoma 69b. Okay. Rabbi Yehoshua ben, Le ben Levi said, right, why are the sages of those generations called the members of the great assembly? Okay, there's something called Ansheik Knesset Hakadola, the great assembly. And it was basically like um, the Jewish people's government in exile during the 70 year exile between the first temple and the second temple. It's in the time of the book of Daniel. It's in the time of the book of, uh, of Esther. Uh, Mordechai was a, a member of the great assembly, Ezra and Nehemiah, who led the, who led the, uh, um, um, the Jews back to Israel after the 70 year exile were members of the great assembly. The question is, what was so great about the great assembly? That's the question. What was so great about the Great Assembly? And the answer is, it, the Great Assembly, returned the crown of the Holy One, blessed be he, to his former glory. How so? Well, Moshe said, uh, I think this is in Parshat Ekev, right? So not long ago, uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said that God is El Agadole Gibor Vahanorah, God is the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. That was Moshe's description of God. Then Jeremiah the prophet came, and he looked around at what was happening. And he said, Gentiles, i.e. the minions of Nebuchadnezzar, are carousing in his sanctuary. Where is his awesomeness? Right? Moshe Rabbeinu talks about God being awesome. I don't see the awesomeness. Right? His temple's being trampled on. Therefore, Jeremiah did not use the word awesome in his prayer. In the book of Jeremiah 23, verse 18, Jeremiah says, the great God, the mighty Lord of hosts. So he calls God Gadol, right? And he calls God Gibor, but he doesn't call God Norah. He deletes one of the words that Moses, is, Moses used because he just didn't see him in his own experience. Daniel, right, who's actually as I said, kind of liminally of the same generation of the, the men of the Great Assembly, Daniel came and said, Gentiles are enslaving his children. Where is his might? You call God Gibor? I don't see any Gvura. I don't see any might right now. Therefore, when Daniel prayed, he didn't use the word Gvura, Gibor, might. He called God uh, um, El Gadol Venorah, the great and awesome God. So both Daniel and Jeremiah deleted a word that Moses used to praise God. Then the members of the great assembly came and they said, on the contrary, this is the might of his might, that he conquers his inclination in that he exercised patience towards the wicked. This here I'm using the Steinsout translation. Um, I just copied and pasted from from Safaria, the bold words, uh, the bold text words are, are direct translations of the, the original Aramaic. The, 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 the non-bold text is actually a translation of Steinsatz's, uh, Ravadin Steinsatz's uh, explanation. But in the explanation here of Steinsatz says that God's anger, if you believe God exists, right? We believe that God's anger is flared by the Gentile nation's enslavement of his people. Yet, God actually expresses tremendous might by suppressing that anger and holding back from punishing them immediately. Therefore, it is still appropriate to refer to God as mighty. And the Gemara carries on. And these acts are also express his awesomeness. Because were it not for the awesomeness of the Holy One, blessed be he, how could one people, the Jewish people, who were alone and hated by the Gentile nations, survive among the nations. You want to talk about awesomeness? How was it that the Jewish people survived in the face of all of that oppression and all of that hatred? So the men of the Great Assembly got together and said, no, 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 we, we still see the might and we still see the awe. And that's why the men of the Great Assembly, who are traditionally attributed the, the, um, the codification of the Amida prayer, the prayer that we say that centrally three times a day, it's the, cent the centerpiece of the three 
uh, prayer services, it describes God, Ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor v'hanorah. It takes all of Moshe's words. It doesn't delete the word that Jeremiah deleted, and it doesn't delete the word that Daniel deleted, and therefore it, it restores the crown of God to its former glory. Now, let's just look at this last paragraph before I try and un un unpack it a little bit. The Gemara asks, and the rabbis, i.e. the ones that disagreed with the men of the great assembly, i.e. Jeremiah and Daniel, how could they do this? How's it okay that they could uproot the words that Moshe used? Moshe is the greatest teacher who instituted, you know, he instituted the mention of these attributes in prayer. How could Jeremiah and Daniel have the gumption to, to quote Moses, but to delete one of the adjectives? That's the question the Gemara asked, and this is Rabbi Elazar's answer. Because they knew of the Holy One, blessed be he, that he's truthful. God hates lies. So they didn't speak falsely about him. So there's a lot going on here. I want to try and explain how the Gemara strikes me. And again, I hope there'll be time to discuss, you know, if, if there are things left over that people want to discuss. There is, a, there is an attempt at a theodicy in this piece of Gemara. The theodicy is, is expressed on behalf of the, the, the sages of the Great Assembly, right? Anshe Knesset Hagdola. Um, they try to defend God's silence. They try to defend God's inaction. And the defense is, is related to something that philosophers call the free will defense. And the free will defense says something like this. Look, God would love to intercede, but for one reason or another, he's given humanity free will. And it's up to humans to uh, behave themselves and to use that gift of free will to make, to make good choices. Makes me think of something else that my rabbi, uh, Rabbi Sachs taught, Said so when he first visited Auschwitz, the question that haunted him wasn't where is God? Because said God was God could be heard loud and clear in the ancient words, thou shalt not kill. God could be heard loud and clear in the ancient words, do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. God could be heard loud and clear. The question that haunted Rabbi Sachs was where was man? because the Holocaust was an, uh, a, a, a prime example of man's inhumanity to man. And um, this, this is also consonant with the free will defense, which is that God gives us instructions, tells us how to live, but then he lets us make our choices. And according to the Anshe Knesset Gedola, the men of the Great Assembly, that actually shows tremendous um, gavura, might, or restraint on behalf of God. Because if he really is all loving, surely he was jumping at the bit to, 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 to intervene and to uh, look after the, the, the oppressed. Um, and they, they see his, his, his awesomeness in the survival of the Jewish people. Fine. That's one piece. I, I personally have my own problems with the free will defense. We can talk about it later. I mean, um, I can never talk about things later because I just have to say them straight away. So, so um, the, for me, the, the two main problems are, number one, um, it's all very well to give people free, free will. I give my kids, you know, a free choice, but you do it within certain parameters. And when things get too bad, you do intervene. You don't take away their freedom, but at least from time to time you intervene, which is what God did in Egypt. He intervened. Right, so why on earth didn't he intervene in the Holocaust? Why on earth didn't he intervene in Rwanda? Why on earth did he intervene? Doesn't he intervene every single day? Like when, when he sees things go beyond a certain, a certain gvul, a certain uh, limit. So it's all very well to give us free will, but like I said, there should be a limit. The, the second problem I have with, with um, the free will defense, of course, is that it, it, it doesn't respond to all types of evil. Uh, not all evils are a function of man's inhumanity to man. Some, some evils befall us because of, of, of biology, you know, think of genetic diseases or, or because of uh, the climate. Now, of course, part of why the climate attacks us is because of our bad behavior, right? Because of climate change. But, you know, 
uh, um, there could be climate catastrophes that don't have anything to do with, with uh, you know, uh, human intervention or, or earthquakes or other things that philosophers call natural evil. So I have my problems with the free will defense. But what I love about this Gemara, and I think this is the, the it's, it's almost a, it's a kind of shocking type of, of um, honesty in this Gemara, which is, yeah, this Gemara loves the free will defense and it loves Anshay Hikanesic Gedola because they, they gave uh, God all the glory by calling him just like Moses did. Wonderful. But they, they do not, and this Gemara is unwilling to condemn Jeremiah and Daniel. Jeremiah and Daniel don't seem to love the free will defense. They look at the evil in the world. They say, I just don't see, I don't see God's strength right now. And therefore, I'm not going to call God Gibor. And I don't see God's awesomeness right now. So I'm not going to call God awesome. And, and the Gemara, even though it disagrees with them, it doesn't condemn them because they knew that God wants authenticity from us. Right. So this is another problem with theodicy that I want to share with you is that very often it just sounds inauthentic. It's all very well and good to say, oh, I have a theodicy. I've worked it all out. But in the middle of your own pain and suffering, right, it just sounds inauthentic to say, oh, yes, there's a free will defense. And there's, uh, you know, I've read about St. Irenaeus and I, and I read so-and-so's commentary on the book of Job. But no, it doesn't work in the midst of the pain and the suffering. It, it's hollow in the midst of the pain and suffering. And do you know what? If in the midst of the pain and the suffering, you are unable to call God mighty, so be it, right? We, it's just, you know, the Gemara is not going to condemn you for that. If you're unable to call, call God awesome, so be it. The Gemara is not going to condemn you for that. My, my grandmother wouldn't have described herself as a religious woman. And she had a number of things happen in her life that, that um, were, were, were really, really tragic. And she told me sometimes, especially as I was becoming more religious, oh, she, I'm very angry with God, Sam. I've got a bone to pick with God. I'm very angry with God. And it strikes me all these years later that that's a very, very religious attitude because to be angry with God is to express a relationship with him. An atheist can't be angry at God because an atheist doesn't believe that God exists, right? And, and there's room for anger at God. And, and it's as if the Gemara would say, I'd rather you be angry and I'd rather you not even call me great and mighty than you offer some inauthentic, you know, faint praise where you pretend you have a theodicy. If it doesn't work for you in the midst of your pain, so be it. So that's, that's another kind of um, reason for reticence about theodicy. It's all very well, as we say, in the ivory tower to come up with a theodicy. But, but when, you're, when you're meeting with the terminally ill, is that theodicy appropriate anymore, right? Um, might work in the abstract. Does it work in, 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 in the concrete? Another anti-theodicy kind of approach, Rabbi Soloveitchik, um, in a talk that was later published as an essay called A Halachic Approach to Suffering, uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote the following. Uh, and like much of what Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote, it needs some decoding afterwards you know like english was his third or fourth language but he spoke it better than any of us uh yes the the topical halakha has evolved an ethic of suffering instead of a metaphysics of suffering so he distinguishes these two things an ethics of suffering and a metaphysics of suffering but what what does that mean i'll try and explain in a moment so while the metaphysics is out to discover the ontological objective reason of suffering from within the ethic posits meanings from within and without. It is concerned not so much with pathos as such, but with the pathetic mood of the person in distress, with the assimilation of pain into the total eye awareness, with man's response to adversity and disaster. This is the difference between a metaphysics and an ethic of evil. The metaphysics seeks to justify evil or perhaps to deny its reality. The ethic of suffering seeks the transformation of an alien factum which one encounters into an actus in which one engages, the succumbing to an overwhelming force 
into an experience impregnated with directness and sense. So now in, in English, uh, I think what he's saying is this. A metaphysics of evil would be the attempt to try to explain what evil is, if it exists at all, and why evil is. Right? So a theodicy would be an attempt to give a metaphysics of evil. An ethics of evil is interested in what evil is, but only in the sense of how it feels. So to give what a philosopher would call, I'm going to make things worse before I make them easy, what a philosopher would call a phenomenology of evil. Phenomenology is the study of what things feel like from the inside. So, you know, when the ethics of evil is interested in what evil is, it's interested in what it feels like to suffer, what it feels like to be in pain. And the ethics of evil is interested in taking that feeling and directing it to something good, to something positive. In a nutshell, what Rabbi Soloveitchik tends to say about evil is don't ask, why does the evil happen? Ask, what should I do in response to the evil? And he would go so far, I think, as to say there's something even un-Jewish about asking why does the evil happen or to, to something un-Jewish about asking for a metaphysics of evil. The Jewish uh, um, attitude is to provide an ethics of evil. And one of the reasons I say that is because for us Soloveitchik, Judaism is, in a nutshell, halakha, Jewish law. In fact, I think he actually said this to Rabbi Sachs at one point when they, when they met in the 60s. I think this anecdote was told to Rabbi Sachs by Rabbi Soloveitchik, but the, the, the anecdote is Rabbi Soloveitchik told somebody or other that they really should read Rabbi, Rabbi Heschel's The Sabbath, right? Avram Yoshua's Heschel's tremendous work, The Sabbath. It's a fabulous book. He said, but don't forget that actually the Sabbath is just 39 malachot. It's a very, very beautiful book by Rav Heschel about how the Sabbath is a sanctuary in time, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, if you want to know what the Sabbath is, it's just laws. Because Rav Soloveitchik, everything was laws. But that, that seems reductive. Here, in this quote, you see the kind of the power of that. The idea is Ju Judaism is inherently interested in action. Halakha is action. Right? It's doing. So don't give me a theodicy. A theodicy is some sort of intellectual exercise of trying to understand why pain happens and what pain is. Give me a halacha, right, which is an instruction about how to take that pain, how to take that suffering and transform it into something good. And this, um, this is, is um, manifest really beautifully uh, throughout his book called Odidofek, which in its translation, I think, is called Fate and Destiny. It was released in, in, in English called Fate and Destiny. Um, this is his his, um, um, I suppose, defense would be the wrong word, but I suppose this was his work of, of Zionist theology when he kind of um, came out, so to speak, as, as a Zionist because he came from a family that was uh, um, anti-Zionist. He wrote this book called Didofek that was a kind of um, um, manifesto of his type of religious Zionism. Uh, in that essay, he writes the following. He says, man is born like an object. And he dies like an object. Because there's nothing you can do about being born, right? Being born wasn't your choice. And that's the truth with dying, too. We talk about the evils of objectification all the time, but birth and death are big objectifiers because they render the person at their heart, whether the baby being born or the person dying, an object. But man, and here, of course, he means human, right, man and woman, possess the ability to live like a subject, a creator, an innovator, who can impress his own individual seal upon his life and can extricate himself from a mechanical type of existence and enter into a creative, active mode of being. So in between these bookends of birth and death, you have the ability to be a subject, right? To write your own biography. Man's task in the world, according to Judaism, is to transform fate into destiny. A passive existence, where you're just an object, into an active existence. An existence of compulsion, perplexity, and muteness into an existence replete with a powerful will, with resourcefulness, 
daring, and imagination. The problem with theodicies too often is they transform us into victims. And I can't remember who it was, Edith, somebody might be, maybe remember, tell me her name. She was a psychologist who, who was a, a Holocaust survivor. Um, she, Edith. Ager, is it Ager? Ager, that's right, Edith Ager, thank you, thank you. Uh, Edith Ager, she says this beautiful point about being a victim and victimhood. Says, says um, you don't have a choice about whether you're gonna be a victim of somebody else's oppression. Right? But you, have, you do have a choice if you're going to kind of define yourself as a victim. Right? So victimhood, rather than being a victim, being a victim you don't have a choice about. Victimhood, she, she posited, is, is something that you can choose not to be. Right? Even if everybody else makes you into the victim, you don't allow that to define who and what you are. Uh, and, and I think Rabbi Soloveitchik's concern with theodicy is it turns us all into victims. It turns us all into objects rather than subjects. Don't ask, why is this bad stuff happening? Ask, how can I make it better, right? Um, so you've heard a lot about why we might not want to do theodicy, right? Rabbi Sachs was saying, well, maybe if we learn the answer, um, um, we, we won't, we won't feel as uh, passionately drawn to fighting injustice. Um, we've seen the Gemara with its recognition that when you are a victim of pain, suffering and evil, there's probably something quite inauthentic about offering a theodicy. And finally, we've seen Rabbi Soloveitchik say something which takes us back really to Rabbi Sachs and has something similar. Rabbi Sachs, which is that there is a problem that, that the very idea of trying to explain why bad things happen, it's not just that you'll justify them, but it's that you'll turn yourself into an object. You'll define yourself in terms of your victimhood, and that's bad for you. Uh, you you, you want to be a subject rather than an object. You want to be an agent rather than a patient. Okay. Um, perhaps I'm, I'm giving too many sources on, on this front, but... Um, David Schatz, this is a picture of David Schatz. He, he, there's a book called, um, I have it on my bookshelf. I'm actually an editor of it, so I should do. Uh, this book here, um, Jewish Philosophy in an Analytic Age. Um, uh, David Schatz has an essay in it called Eschewing Theodicy. And this is a quote from that essay. He writes, look, a professor doesn't mind her students asking probing questions. We all like that. Okay, or even raising criticisms. But there would be something impudent to answer questions on the professor's behalf, right? You ask the question, you don't answer it on behalf of the, uh, of the professor. It would be impudent to presume that you know what her answers to your questions are. So the arrogance of theodicy could be presented as the arrogance of speaking on God's behalf. This is another reason why you might not want to give a theodicy, right? It's up to God one day, maybe at the end of days, to explain to us why he allowed all this terrible stuff to happen. It's not for you, right, to say on God's behalf why it's happening. There's something arrogant about doing that, presuming to know what God thinks and presuming to understand it. The arrogance of challenging God, that's fine. We know that God likes it when we challenge him, right? That's what the Bible's all about. But to speak on his behalf, criticism and questioning, even protesting, do not presume to speak on God's behalf, but theodicies do. Another consideration comes to mind as well. As we said, protest might be sanctioned because it shows empathy and devotion to the temple, for example, and to the people. So God, that might be another reason why God doesn't mind us protesting against him, because when we do protest against him, we're showing the empathy we have for the people around us, right? Um, but when you present a theodicy, you don't show that. In fact, sometimes when you present a theodicy, it doesn't sound all that empathetic at all. I remember when, you know, the, that, 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 that tr tragic tsunami happened in Asia at the turn of, of this century, and there were theologians saying, oh, this happened because of... Of, of this sin, and this happened because of that sin. Well, first, not only is it arrogant, but it's deeply offensive to the people who've, who've been 
who've been hurt, okay? Um, rather, show the sensitivity in protesting against God. God's fine with that. The arrogance of, of saying that you can speak on his behalf. Nonetheless, Nachmanides, in a beautiful and important book called Torah Adam, it's actually a book about all of the halachot of um, death, burial and, 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 and mourning and all of the laws of death. So it's a law book. But the last chapter of this book is a philosophy treatise. So it's a kind of uh, interesting synthesis of genres, right? Because he says at the end of this book of halakha, this law book about death, there's a chapter, uh, actually, I think I should explain. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do we die at all? Right? So, so there's a theodicy kind of treatise uh, pasted on to the end of the book about the laws of death. And in it, he said, you might ask the following question. Since there is a hidden matter in God's judgment, we must believe in his righteousness insofar as he is the true judge, i.e. the judge whose judgments are true. Why do you trouble us, Ramban, Nachmanides, and command or instruct us to learn the claims that we've explained and the secrets to which we've alluded? Because Nachmanides is offering a theodicy in this chapter. He says, you might ask, why am I doing that? We, we have faith. We have faith that there's an answer. You don't need to know what the answer is, right? Why, why do we not just hinge everything on the support we will arrive at eventually? Because we know that there's no iniquity or forgetfulness before him. And we know that all these ways are just. So let's just carry on in faith in God and not have a theodicy. Well, against all of the, the things, the slides I've shown you up to now, the Ramban comes against that hard. He says, this objection is the claim of fools, despisers of wisdom. For, <laughs> I'm not going to say that about Rabbi Sachs or, or Rabbi Soloveitchik or, or, or the Gemara itself. It's not for me to talk that way. It's just interesting sometimes the medieval uh, scholars uh, would brandish quite harsh language about one another. Uh, um, uh, that you know, that I, I wouldn't necessarily sanction. But he says, for through the above mentioned study, the study of theodicy will benefit ourselves by becoming wise people and knowers of God, may he be blessed, by contemplating his ways. Okay, and he's going to say two things which I think are really important here, and then I'll try and, uh, and wind up, um, at least this slide. Um, first, it's the obligation of every creature who serves God out of love and fear to investigate in order, the, the real uh, um, verb here in Hebrew is to justify, right? in order to, to defend and justify and to show that God's judgment is true according to his ability. So first of all, he actually thinks we all have an obligation to try to figure out how it is that God is just, even in the face of all this evil. Now, you shouldn't take yourself to be certain that you've got the answer right. That would be arrogance, right? That's where faith comes in. And you say, look, I'm not sure that this is the right answer, but it's a possibility. But Nachmanides thinks you have an obligation at least to try. And I think he thinks that's because you have an obligation to try to know God and try to have a relationship with God. And if you're not thinking about what God's possible motivations are, you're not really having a relationship with God at all. So I think Nachmanides would, would counsel us, say, sure, fight against the temptation to be arrogant. Sure, recognize that in the midst of the pain and the suffering, you might not be able to come up with anything authentic, but that doesn't necessarily relieve you of the obligation to try, okay, to try in humility. The second thing he says is really interesting. He says, in order that his mind be composed in this matter, the Hebrew here is, and the verdict of his creator will appear true to him. Some people might feel uncomfortable with this. It sounds almost intellectually dishonest. But what he's saying is this. Even if you get the wrong answer, it might settle your heart. And that might be enough. <laughs> okay. um, um, certainly, if, if it's done with humility, you're, you're always open to the possibility you haven't got it right. But perhaps the task here isn't to find the truth. That might be beyond us but even to find something that might work, 
because that at least has the possibility to, possibility of settling your heart. Um, the challenge, if you're in the, the, the line of, of, of business that I think we are called upon to be as Jews and human beings, which is to fight injustice, if that's your business, fighting injustice, but you also have you also want to have a relationship with God. In fact, if the reason you're fighting injustice is because you see yourself as an ambassador of God, then you are in the quandary that I've been trying to lay out for you. Because on the one hand, you feel this need to come up with a theodicy. Because if you don't, how could it be that you have a relationship with God? How could it be that, that um, how, can, how can you genuinely say without seeming two-faced that your God is all-powerful and that your God is all-knowing and that your God is all-loving? And how can you genuinely look evil in the face and really believe that it is evil and that it needs to be combated? How can you do those things is the quandary I've been trying to diagnose. And, and Nachmanides would tell us the right answer to this isn't what Rav Soloveitchik would tell us. So, so Rav Soloveitchik almost seems like would say, don't think too hard about it, just do. Nachmanides says, no, you won't really have a relationship with God unless you think hard about it. You might not come up to the truth, but part of what we do when we have a relationship with one another is we try to put ourselves in the other's shoes. Now, with God, the chasm is infinitely large. So you, so you have to know that, you know, you can only do this with very limited success. But that's what relationship is about. So you need to try and think about what possibly could God be doing? Here. We also need to try and, 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 and settle our own souls. We have to come we have to comfort not just those suffering uh, uh, beyond, but we have to kind of comfort. The, 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 the raging tempest inside our own souls uh, to carry on in this dual path of on the one hand having faith in your all-powerful, all-loving and all-knowing uh, all God, whilst also fighting the injustice. Perhaps we need a theodicy in order to in order that you can, you can be at all composed. What I often bring as a, as a counterexample to the claim that theodicy leads to quietism. Okay, theodicy, again, is the, attempt to, to, is the attempt to defend God in the face of the problem of evil. Quietism is the idea, I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to get involved in politics. I'm not going to get involved in activism. I'm not going to get involved in, in quenching the flames of injustice because it's all up to God. That would be called religious quietism. When people tell me that theodicy leads to quietism, my go-to example is Martin Luther King, because in his I Have a Dream speech, he says, we're going to carry on in the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. That's actually a form of theodicy known as the Irenaean theodicy, or some people call it the soul-making theodicy. It's the view that pain and suffering, at least one of the functions of pain and suffering, is to shape a human being. Um, C.S. Lewis has this beautiful metaphor, which is an Iranian metaphor. He says, God is pain, sorry, pain is God's megaphone to raise uh, a sleeping world. Why doesn't God use something nicer like violins and laughter? Why does he use pain as a megaphone? Says C.S. Lewis, because the dream from which we need to be awakened is the dream that all is well. So pain plays a role in kind of waking us up, sensitizing us and shaping us into better human beings. That's what uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyon thought. And that's, I think, what Martin Luther King was, was um, um, alluding to uh, when, when he talks about uh, unearned suffering being redemptive. But did that stop him trying to fight the flames of injustice? Not at all. <laughs> Did that lead to quietism? Not at all. So it is possible to have a theodicy um, um, without quietism, but that is the challenge. Okay, let me just uh, show you. Uh, we, yeah, I, I've gone over time, so let me just uh, do one more thing. I was going to share with you, but I, I was I was far too ambitious about what I'd be able to do in the time I had. You know, I have my own version of a theodicy, but it's very, very strange, and it has to do with, with God changing the past and all sorts of things. Uh, 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 another time, maybe. But let me uh, just share with you some further reading. 
One is uh, I have a paper that I wrote with Tyron Goldschmidt. It's a very difficult paper, but it is available uh, online. It's called The Promise of a New Past, where I explain, based in Hasidic Jewish texts, uh, what I take to be a really interesting theodicy. Um, a lot of my writings, if not all of them, uh, are available uh, on samlebens.com. Here, I don't get any money for this, so it's not, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a book that I appear in called Conversations About God and the Problem of Evil. Uh, it's these two really great guys in South Africa, Jason Werbelop and Mark Oppenheimer, and they interview philosophers. In this book, they interview Graham Oppie, who's a really tremendous atheist philosopher from Melbourne, and me. Uh, they interview us both about the problem of evil. Uh, you might be interested because I actually get into the business of theodicy. And I have a book coming out with Magid, supposed to be out before the festivals uh, um, that are coming upon us. Uh, it's called A Guide for the Jewish Undecided. People are interested. But what I will say is this. The challenge to the philosopher is to find theodicies that don't lead to arrogance, that aren't inauthentic, and that also explain the role that we have or are consistent with the role that we have to play in countering injustice. And, 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 and that's the challenge for, for a um, liberal-minded theist who believes that we are called upon by God as his ambassadors to fight the flames of injustice. So I went over a bit, uh, but, but that's, that's the project. Okay, um, incredibly thoughtful uh, presentation. And uh, so thank you so much for both the robust questions and texts and humility um, in the face of it all. So what I'd like to do with your with your permission, Rabbi Liebens, is to actually invite a few voices in the room, um, because I, I fear if we have only one question, the, the whole time will get consumed with that. And then you can yes, just give a, final, right. you'll give a final response to whatever yeah. you wish to respond to. Fabulous. Um, so Toby, let's start with you, please, Toby. And you'll just take a few notes, Sam. Okay. Give me the two-minute version of what's going on in the book of Job. Okay. A two-minute version is going to be hard, but we'd love to hear that. Okay. Who else wants to jump in here? And if you post it in the chat, just feel free to verbalize it because we have another chance all to read it. Okay. Anyone else? Yes, Aglaia. Okay. okay. Uh, just quickly, though, um, I've always wondered, would it be even possible for humans to love at all if there weren't a lot of suffering? Okay. Would it be possible for humans to... Would they be able to love at all? Okay, great. Aglaia, thank you. Who else wants to jump in here? Yes, yes, Dr. Eckstein. So I said in the chat, for those of us who believe in God, isn't the usual explanation is that we humans can never, ever understand everything about God or what God does. Therefore, when evil occurs, the answer should be God works in mysterious ways. And for <laughs> us who don't believe in God, the answer to evil is very simple. Humans are both good and evil. Sometimes we act as Sometimes we act as evil humans. Thank you, Shmuley. Yes, Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Uh, and I found I found uh, Isaiah forty-five seven to be the most comforting. Whenever uh, I get into a situation of, of angst, which I've been in a couple times in my life, um, you know, in Isaiah forty-five seven talks about forming light and creating darkness you know, making shalom and creating evil. And Isaiah says that about God. It's very instructive. And if you remember that God is the creator of everything, it, it, put, it put me at some knees. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sander. Okay, who else? I don't want to miss anyone. Feel free just to unmute yourself if I can't see a hand. Okay, so I, I'll, try and wrap, I'll try and wrap up with, 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 with these questions as my inspiration. Great. So... Uh, first of all, very quickly in, in, about the book of Job, and I think this is this is tremendously important. It, it also re relates to what John Eckstein said. Um, th there's there's a type of uh, philosophy out there these days. It's called skeptical theism. In fact, there's a, a book I think Oxford University Press put out called Skeptical Theism. The idea is it's not skeptical about theism. These guys tend to be theists. Uh, what they're skeptical about is our our ability to understand God's ways. As you say, John, God, God works in mysterious ways. So we should, uh, we should, with all humility, as theists, recognize that, that given our belief in a transcendent being that's just completely beyond us, we won't always get it in the end of the day. And, and, and somehow to, 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 to live 
in the face of that kind of epistemic humility. I think that's I think that's very important. I would say that nonetheless, and this is going to get me back to the book of Job, that that doesn't necessarily get us off the hook for trying. And I think that's what Nachmanides was saying. You know, we need to try to understand God if we want to have a life lived in relationship with God, uh, even if ultimately it's futile, that we'll never, ever get there. But it's, you know, they say you shoot for the stars, right? You might, you might, you might reach. So, yes, I take what you're saying. How does that relate to the book of Job? Well, I take the book of Job myself to almost be a book that's anti-theodicy as well, because all of these comforters come to Job and they try to give classical theodicies where they explain, you know, God's doing these bad things because of this or it's because of that or it's all okay, really, you don't understand, it's because of this, it's because of that. And God comes down and he condemns Job's comforters. Then he asks Job a ton of questions that are completely unfair, like, were you there when I, you know, put the foundations down to the, well, of course I wasn't. You know how old I am, God, right? <laughs> so he asks all these rhetorical questions that, that Job has no chance of, of answering. But the thing I take it to be, you know, after the whirlwind, after God asked all of those questions, Job seems to be completely reconciled. And there's a beautiful reading by a Catholic philosopher and a friend and a mentor of mine, Eleanor Stump, in a wonderful book about the problem of evil called Wandering in Darkness. And she has a chapter on the book of Job, and she suggests the following. Job never gets a theodicy. He never gets an explanation that's satisfactory. But by the end of standing in the presence of God, he feels like he has a relationship with God. And it's the existence of the relationship that's a tremendous comfort, even in the face of not understanding why all this was okay. Right? And I think that's a profound thing. It brings back what Toby said with what John said, which is at the end of the day, we might have to live with not knowing. And how is that, you know, how, you know, how, do, how does that, what might that look like? And I think the book of Job perhaps shows us that one, one way we can cope with not knowing is if we really truly feel the presence of God in our lives. Um, and if you feel his goodness, at least in the, on the bright days, um, then, then, then you might be able to live with this type of skeptical theism. Uh, um, would humans be able to love if there wasn't pain and suffering in the world? I think it's a, a fabulous question. Um, um, this relates to this notion that, that's called soul-making theodicy. Um, the idea is John Hick was a great philosopher of religion in the University of Birmingham, and he said, "Not not Alabama, I'm afraid. You know, the other Birmingham." He he uh, he he used to say, "Don't don't judge the world by how nice a place it is, right? That's that would be making God into like somebody who owns a, a bunch of pets, and is he a good pet keeper? Right? How comfortable is the kind of the 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 the, the cage that we're kept in? No. The purpose of the world is for us to grow in. So the question is, you need to judge the world in terms of how good an environment is it? How good, it is, how good a platform is it for this task called soul making? And it could be that, yes, yeah, some of the pain and the suffering is, is, is a part of what makes us greater, not because of our indifference to the pain and suffering, but specifically because uh, we feel the need to put it out. Right? There's a ton of Midrashim and there are a ton of Agadotot in, in, in the Talmud that seem to have uh, that very message. And that, that might be one part of a theodicy that hits uh, these desiderata that I was trying to, to lay out. We want a theodicy that won't, that won't lead to arrogance. We want a theodicy that will sound authentic. And we want a, a theodicy uh, um, uh, that will be humble, but one that won't lead to quietism. Right? One that won't resign us. Uh, to the suffering around us. Uh, that, that's the difficult task to get right. I, I, I have my own strange theodicy, and like I said, you can chase it up, and if people want to read the slides, there was more that, that might explain some of my own views. But part of it is I think history itself is in a process of evolution. And I actually think, I'll leave you with this as, a, as, as, as something that might inspire you to, to do some further reading if you're interested. Maybe one day, the past will be different, which is, um, it could be that, you know, like um, imagine that the, the, the history from the Big Bang until now is a story that God is writing with us as, as, as co-authors. Well, perhaps this is just the first draft, right? And, 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 and um, 
if we want to be uh, saved uh, uh, for the final draft, we better live really, really good lives, right? Uh, um, something like that. Now, there's a load of problems with this, but you can do your research if you're interested in the in the little direction I gave you. There. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful to learn with you. Um, profound questions and teachings. Uh, thank you all for joining us. We hope you'll join us tomorrow with Rabbani Sharona Halakman, Finding Spirituality in the Laws and Customs of the High Holidays. Also next week with Dr. Tanya White, Repentance as the Transformation of Self Through the Call of the Other, and with Dr. Alana Steinhain, Nature and Revelation, what the Jewish calendar teaches us about their relationship. Also want to give a- Alana and Tanya are friends of mine. Send them my love. Wonderful. <laughs> also want to give a plug for in-person, if you're in Denver, when I'll be there in two weeks, um, in-person in Phoenix um, with Rabbi D uh, David Wolpe and with Letty Pogrebin coming up and a, and a film screening we're doing. Lots of great stuff. Have a great day, everyone. Happy Elul. Thank you so much, Rashmuri. Thank you, everybody. Love to meet you all. Have a great Thank day you. in Israel. All the best in Haifa. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybatemidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemidrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.